Chapter thirty nine of El Dorado by Baroness Ozy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter thirty nine. Kill him. Two hours after midnight, Armand Saint Just was wakened from sleep by a peremptory pull at his bell. In these days in Paris, there was but one meaning that could, as a rule, be attached to such a summons at this hour of the night, and Armand, though possessed of an unconditional certificate of safety, sat up in bed quite convinced that for some reason which would presently be explained to him, he had once more been placed on the list of the suspect, and that his trial and condemnation on a trumped-up charge would follow in due course. Truth to tell, he felt no fear at the prospect, and only a very little sorrow. The sorrow was not for himself. He regretted neither life nor happiness. Life had become hateful to him since happiness had fled with it on the dark wings of dishonour. Sorrow such as he felt was only for Jeanne. She was very young, and would weep bitter tears. She would be unhappy, because she truly loved him, and because this would be the first cup of bitterness which life was holding out to her. But she was very young, and sorrow would not be eternal. It was better so. He, Armand Saint-Just, though he loved her with an intensity of passion that had been magnified and strengthened by his own overwhelming shame, had never really brought his beloved one single moment of unalloyed happiness. From the very first day when he sat beside her in the tiny boudoir of the Square du Roule, and the heavy footfall of Heron and his bloodhounds broke in on their first kiss, down to this hour, which he believed struck his own death-knell, his love for her had brought more tears to her dear eyes than smiles to her exquisite mouth. Her he had loved so dearly, that for her sweet sake he had sacrificed honour, friendship, and truth. To free her, as he believed, from the hands of impious brutes, he had done a deed that cried Cain-like for vengeance to the very throne of God. For her he had sinned, and because of that sin, even before it was committed, their love had been blighted, and happiness had never been theirs. Now it was all over. He would pass out of her life, up the steps of the scaffold, tasting as he mounted them the most entire happiness that he had known since that awful day when he became a Judas. The peremptory summons, once more repeated, roused him from his meditations. He lit a candle, and without troubling to slip any of his clothes on, he crossed the narrow antechamber, and opened the door that gave on the landing. "'In the name of the people!' He had expected to hear not only those words, but also the grounding of arms and the brief command to halt. He had expected to see before him the white facings of the uniform of the Garde de Paris, and to feel himself roughly pushed back onto his lodging, preparatory to the search being made of all his effects and the placing of irons on his wrists. Instead of this, it was a quiet, dry voice that said without undue harshness, "'In the name of the people!' And instead of the uniforms, the bayonets, and the scarlet caps with tricolour cockades, he was confronted by a slight, sable-clad figure whose face, lit by the flickering light of the tallow candle, looked strangely pale and earnest. "'Citizen Chauvelin!' gasped Armand, more surprised than frightened at this unexpected apparition. "'Himself, citizen, at your service,' replied Chauvelin, with his quiet, ironical manner. "'I am the bearer of a letter for you from Sir Percy Blakeney. Have I your permission to enter?' Mechanically Armand stood aside, allowing the other man to pass in. He closed the door behind his nocturnal visitor, then, taper in hand, he preceded him into the inner room. It was the same one in which, a fortnight ago, a fighting lion had been brought to his knees. Now it lay wrapped in gloom, the feeble light of the candle only lighting Armand's face and the white frill of his shirt. The young man put the taper down on the table, and turned to his visitor. "'Shall I light the lamp?' he asked. "'Quite unnecessary,' replied Chauvelin curtly. "'I have only a letter to deliver, and after that to ask you one brief question.' From the pocket of his coat he drew the letter which Blakeney had written an hour ago. 
"'The prisoner wrote this in my presence,' he said, as he handed the letter over to Armand. "'Will you read it?' Armand took it from him, and sat down close to the table. Leaning forward, he held the paper near the light, and began to read. He read the letter through very slowly to the end, then once again from the beginning. He was trying to do that which Chauvelin had wished to do an hour ago. He was trying to find the inner meaning which he felt must inevitably lie behind these words which Percy had written with his own hand. That these bare words were but a blind to try to deceive the enemy, Armand never doubted for a moment. In this he was as loyal as Marguerite would have been herself. Never for a moment did the suspicion cross his mind that Blakeney was about to play the part of a coward. But he, Armand, felt that, as a faithful friend and follower, he ought by instinct to know exactly what his chief intended, what he meant him to do. Swiftly his thoughts flew back to that other letter, the one which Marguerite had given him, the letter full of pity and of friendship which had brought him hope and joy and peace, which he had thought at one time that he would never know again. And suddenly one sentence in that letter stood out so clearly before his eyes that it blurred the actual tangible ones on the paper which even now rustled in his hand. But if at any time you receive any other letter from me, be its contents what they may, act in accordance with the letter, but send a copy of it at once to Folks or to Marguerite. Now everything seemed at once quite clear. His duty, his next actions, every word that he would speak to Chauvelin. Those that Percy had written to him were already indelibly graven on his memory. Chauvelin had waited with his usual patience, silent and imperturbable, while the young man read. Now, when he saw that Armand had finished, he said quietly, "'Just one question, citizen, and I need not detain you longer. But first, will you kindly give me back that letter? It is a precious document which will for ever remain in the archives of the nation.' But even while he spoke, Armand, with one of those quick intuitions that come in moments of acute crisis, had done just that which he felt Blakeney would wish him to do. He had held the letter close to the candle. A corner of the thin, crisp paper immediately caught fire, and before Chauvelin could utter a word of anger, or make a movement to prevent the conflagration, the flames had licked up fully one half of the letter, and Armand had only just time to throw the remainder on the floor, and to stamp out the blaze with his foot. "'I am sorry, citizen,' he said calmly. "'An accident.' "'A useless act of devotion,' interposed Chauvelin, who already had smothered the oath that had risen to his lips. The Scarlet Pimpernel's actions in the present matter will not lose their merited publicity through the foolish destruction of this document. "'I had no thought, citizen,' retorted the young man, "'of commenting on the actions of my chief, or of trying to deny them that publicity which you seem to desire for them almost as much as I do. More, citizen, a great deal more. The impeccable Scarlet Pimpernel, the noble and gallant English gentleman, has agreed to deliver into our hands the uncrowned King of France, in exchange for his own life and freedom.' Methinks that even his worst enemy would not wish for a better ending to a career of adventure, and a reputation for bravery unequalled in Europe. But no more of this. Time is pressing. I must help Citizen Heron with his final preparations for his journey. You, of course, Citizen Saint-Just, will act in accordance with Sir Percy Blakeney's wishes? Of course, replied Armand. You will present yourself at the main entrance of the House of Justice at six o'clock this morning. I will not fail you. A coach will be provided for you. You will follow the expedition as hostage for the good faith of your chief. I quite understand. Hm. That's brave. You have no fear, citizen Saint-Just? Fear of what, sir? You will be a hostage in our hands, citizen. Your life a guarantee that your chief has no thought of playing us false. Now I was thinking of—of of certain events which led to the arrest of Sir Percy Blakeney. Of my treachery, you mean, rejoined the young man calmly, even though his face had suddenly become as pale as death of the damnable lie wherewith you cheated me into selling my honour, and made me what I am. 
a creature scarce fit to walk upon this earth.' "'Oh!' protested Chauvelin blandly. "'The damnable lie,' continued Armand more vehemently, "'that hath made me one with Cain and the Iscariot. When you goaded me into the hellish act, Jean Lange was already free.' "'Free, but not safe.' A lie, man, a lie, for which you are thrice accursed. Great God, is it not you that should have cause for fear? Methinks were I to strangle you now I should suffer less of remorse. And would be rendering your ex-chief but a sorry service, interposed Chauvelin with quiet irony. Sir Percy Blakeney is a dying man, citizen Saint-Just. He'll be a dead man at dawn if I do not put in an appearance by six o'clock this morning. This is a private understanding between citizen Heron and myself. We agreed to it before I came to see you. Oh, you take care of your own miserable skin well enough. But you need not be afraid of me. I take my orders from my chief, and he has not ordered me to kill you. That was kind of him. Then we may count on you? You are not afraid? Afraid that the Scarlet Pimpernel would leave me in the lurch because of the immeasurable wrong I have done to him? retorted Armand, proud and defiant in the name of his chief. No, sir, I am not afraid of that. I have spent the last fortnight in praying to God that my life might yet be given for his. Hmm. I think it most unlikely that your prayers will be granted, citizen. Prayers, I imagine, so very seldom are. But I don't know. I never pray myself. In your case, now, I should say that you have not the slightest chance of the deity interfering in so pleasant a manner. Even were Sir Percy Blakeney prepared to wreak personal revenge on you, he would scarcely be so foolish as to risk the other life which we shall also hold as hostage for his good faith. The other life? Yes. Your sister, Lady Blakeney, will also join the expedition to-morrow. This Sir Percy does not yet know, but it will come as a pleasant surprise for him. At the slightest suspicion of false play on Sir Percy's part, at his slightest attempt at escape, your life and that of your sister are forfeit. Ye will both be summarily shot before his eyes. I do not think that I need be more precise, eh, citizen Saint-Just? The young man was quivering with passion a terrible loathing for himself, for his crime which had been the precursor of this terrible situation, filled his soul to the verge of sheer physical nausea. A red film gathered before his eyes, and through it he saw the grinning face of the inhuman monster who had planned this hideous, abominable thing. It seemed to him, as if in the silence and the hush of the night, above the feeble, flickering flame that threw weird shadows around, a group of devils were surrounding him and were shouting, "'Kill him! Kill him now! Rid the earth of this hellish brute!' No doubt, if Chauvelin had exhibited the slightest sign of fear, if he had moved an inch towards the door, Armand, blind with passion, driven to madness by agonizing remorse, more even than by rage, would have sprung at his enemy's throat and crushed the life out of him, as he would have out of a venomous beast. But the man's calm, his immobility, recalled Saint-Just to himself. Reason, that had almost yielded to passion again, found strength to drive the enemy back this time, to whisper a warning, an admonition, even a reminder. Enough harm, God knows, had been done by tempestuous passion already, and God alone knew what terrible consequences its triumph now might bring in its trial, and striking on Armand's buzzing ears, Chauvelin's words came back as a triumphant and mocking echo. He'll be a dead man at dawn if I do not put in appearance by six o'clock. The red film lifted, the candle flickered low, the devils vanished, only the pale face of the terrorist gazed with gentle irony out of the gloom. "'I think that I need not detain you any longer, citizen Saint-Just,' he said quietly. "'You can get three or four hours' rest yet before you need make a start, and I still have a great many things to see to. I wish you good-night, citizen.' "'Good-night,' murmured Armand mechanically. He took the candle and escorted his visitor back to the door. 
He waited on the landing, taper in hand, while Chauvelin descended the narrow, winding stairs. There was a light in the concierge's lodge. No doubt the woman had struck it when the nocturnal visitor had first demanded admittance. His name and tricolour scarf of office had ensured him the full measure of her attention, and now she was evidently sitting up waiting to let him out. Saint-Just, satisfied that Chauvelin had finally gone, now turned back to his own rooms. End of chapter 39